today, I want us to pursue, we've talked about Martin Luther in the 16th century and the a topic of justification by faith alone. And um, one of the issues, and I brought this up a couple of times, was how did the church uh, descend into the dark ages of the gospel? I mean, there was no gospel preached hardly. There, the Bibles were banned. The true Christian uh, preacher would be arrested. There was even, this was the period that we call the Inquisition, where the church actually was hostile to the gospel. Uh, Isaiah 60 verse 2 talks about a period of time in Isaiah's day. This is 700 years before Christ. He says, Darkness shall cover the earth, gross darkness the people, but the Lord will rise upon you and Gentiles will come to your light. Uh, This indicates long periods of darkness can take place. In fact, I um, have said this previous. Never underestimate how large numbers of people, notice how our text says, covers the earth, gross darkness, the people. It covers the earth. Large numbers of people can be in great error, gross darkness, over a long period of time. This is said in Isaiah 700 years before Christ came. But then the light comes. Renewal and revival and the gospel that's been underground erupts. And churches are born and Christians are born again and uh, sinners are born again and, and revival comes in history. So never underestimate how large numbers can be in great error over long periods of time. I've been reading a book by Bill O'Reilly called Killing the Rising Sun. It's about World War II and the defeat of Japan in World War II and the fact that what led the Japanese to war was their view of their emperor, Hirohito. They believed he was divine, And they had believed it, or at least he was a divine mediator. And that had held sway for 2,000 years. Long periods of time. Great numbers of people. Gross error. And only at the defeat of the United States in World War II in the Allies was Emperor Hirohito required as part of the surrender to go on the radio, January 1st, 1946, and disavow his divinity. But I was amazed at once again how this can be. How can such dark ages... It it makes us cautious about adopting the great majority viewpoints in in a nation. Being careful. Caution knowing that truth 
is sometimes a minority. And also in, the, in this, and I'm kind of giving you an introduction here, but it's re- reaffirmed my view of the importance of a biblically grounded people so we don't fall into that. And, and putting a priority on the Holy Scripture. In Genesis 4, it's, it talks about after Adam and Eve had sinned, it says that Cain and Abel came to worship. And Abel brought, it says Abel was a shepherd of the flock. And he brought of the firstborn of the flock. What would that be? If he's a shepherd of a flock and he brings a firstborn, what would that be? It'd be a lamb, wouldn't it? And he brought it as a sacrifice. Here in the very first worship service is the theme of the Bible. The forgiveness of sin by the blood of the Lamb. And Hebrews 11.4, commenting on that text in, in Genesis, puts it like this. Abel brought by faith a sacrifice pleasing to God by which it was stated he's righteous. Oh man, it's the whole gospel story Right in the very beginning. And that's the way it is. You have a sacrificial system all the way through the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes as the Lamb, John 1.29. He's introduced as the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. world. And so the Apostle Paul says, I'm excited to preach the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. It's always faith in Christ. It's always faith alone, not works. And... It's the theme of the Bible from Genesis to the conclusion in Revelation. So it has reaffirmed my faith. Um, put, put up that one with the, the text. Justified, here's the theme. Justified, that is made right with God through faith in Christ, who is the Lamb that takes away our sin. And that's alone. Now, that was first century, that's the first century message. That's the Old Testament message, New Testament message. And that continuity of the gospel defines a church. It's what a church is. The, now, but now by the 1500s, here's what it looked like. Give me the next one up. All of these things I've listed, these are the things Martin Luther, when he, he basically wanted to get right with God. But as he met this dizzying array of messages, here's how your sins can be forgiven. Here's how to obtain absolution. It was confusing and left him in unbelief and doubt. And so as he looked at it and pursued it, he realized we had lost the gospel it reminded me this week when I was reading um, about this little boy. They had a birthday party for a little boy, about two or three years old. And all the family showed up. They were all happy and celebrating and getting the gifts ready. And suddenly someone 
said, well, uh, where's little Johnny? And they couldn't find the boy. And they did discover he was at the bottom of the swimming pool. And someone dove in and, and rescued him just in time. But isn't it amazing that the entire celebration, the point of it was lost in the midst of the celebration. And this is what can happen in the church if we don't keep that great question before us. How can I know God? And how can I have assurance of eternal life? That's, we have to keep that before us. Because, see, if you know God, everything else falls in place, doesn't it? If that priority is kept there, everything else works its way out. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So Luther called justification by faith alone the doctrine by which a church stands or falls. The primary doctrine by which a church is defined. Now, what I want to do is stretch this a little bit this morning um, into the second generation of reformers. Who followed Luther? And there's two or three names that pop up. Uh, John Calvin in France. He was a lawyer, Roman Catholic lawyer. Well, everybody was Roman Catholic. But he was converted by reading the writings of the Protestants, the protesters. They wanted, Luther and the Protestants wanted to purge and reform the church. They did not want to harm their church, the only church they'd ever known. They wanted to help it, teach it. Uh, And so Calvin would read these writings, and he became a Christian. He moved to Geneva, Switzerland, where he pastored and labored for many years, preaching often three times every day. Every, I had four services last Sunday. I was exhausted. But I had Monday off. Calvin never had Mondays off. Uh, now, one thing you should know about Calvin is they paid him in barrels of wine. So maybe that helped him out. I don't know for sure. In Switzerland was a man named Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich, Switzerland. By the way, I'll take the beer. I'm not a wine guy. Just just throwing that out there. Just kidding, just kidding. (laughs) But Zwingli was in Zurich, Switzerland. Now, Zwingli, along with Calvin and Luther had this particularity. Roman Catholic Church had it. Luther had it. Zwingli had it. They believed that church and state go together. And so when you were born, you were baptized as a baby because every, every citizen is baptized into the state as well as into the church. You become a citizen of the state in your baptism as well as a, as a Christian. 
So they baptized all the babies because they were born in their territory. Well, Zwingli had a group of young men who studied the Greek New Testament with him, and they realized that baptism is for adults or those who are old enough to know what they're doing. So they, they said, well, we should be baptized as believers, not citizens of the state. Give me the uh, one, the next one up on Zwingli. I think there's a... This is statue of Zwingli today in, in uh, Zurich. And, and notice he has a Bible in his hand and a sword in his other hand. Give me the next one up. You get a little farther back picture. This long sword. Now, what he believed was that the Bible and the sword go together. If you do not do what I tell you as a state government official regarding religion, I have the Bible. I interpret it. You obey it. If you don't, I have the sword. So to him, state and church went together. And that's why you have this statue like this. Well, the Baptist... Those who baptize as adults or as believers said, no, we believe that there is a different nation under God. There's an earthly nation and kingdom. There's another kingdom, another nation. And to it, we pledge our souls. It's the kingdom where Jesus is the king. You are earthly king. We defer to you. We are courteous to you. We will pay our taxes to you. But we will worship and follow with freedom of conscience only the true king, that king that sits at the right hand of the Father. Zwingli said, uh, no, you will perish. So they arrested these Baptist young men and they drowned them. They said, you like water? We'll put you in the river and leave you there. They did. They arrested them and drowned them. Because in history, and, and I'm not trying to just promote Baptist here, but in history, Baptists were not known or identified as a people who immersed. It's what we tend to think of, that and one saved, always saved. Uh, but Baptists were identified and persecuted for being a people who were devoted to freedom of conscience. That was their identifying mark. Not baptism. And both the Catholics and the Protestants persecuted them and arrested them and put them in jail. In history... Baptists were not persecutors because they didn't believe that they had the right. Other religions were persecutors of Baptists, but Baptists were not. That's one of the distinctions of Baptists. And um, I want to uh, give you... Give me the uh, picture of the... This is St. Lambert's Cathedral in a town called Munster, Germany. Baptists took over Munster, Germany and thought they would have a free society there. Well, the Roman Catholics and the Protestants joined together and attacked them and took the three leaders and 
and imprisoned them in these three cages that are, this is 500 years ago. This is a close-up. And those cages are still there today. Just to, because they're very nationalistic in Germany. Just so you know, you Baptists are not on your own. We're here to tell you what to do. But those three cages made it through even World War II. Usually they melt down all all the metal, but they left those cages up there as a warning to the Baptists. So I won't be going to Munster, Germany as a missionary anytime soon. American historian George Bancroft said this, freedom of conscience and mind was the first trophy of the Baptists. They call them Anabaptists because they baptized again. The word Anna, a little prefix, means uh, again. Thomas Helwes, a Baptist pastor in England, said the king is a mortal man, not God. Therefore, he has no power over our souls to make laws for them or set lords, spiritual lords, over us. Jesus is the Lord. The president's not the Lord. Okay, I'll stop there. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was placed in prison. Why? That's where he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was in an English prison. Not because he was doing something illegal in terms of God's law, or because he was immersing people rather than sprinkling them. He was put there because he would not let the king tell him what to preach. And his little daughter, Mary, would come and stand at the prison windows and ask her daddy when he's coming home. But he stayed on principle of conscience and liberty. You see, the state cannot hand me a piece of paper and say, we forbid you from preaching against abortion. Are you happy about that? At least they don't do it right now. If they did do it, what should I do? I should go to jail. The state cannot hand me a law and say you cannot stand against homosexual marriage because the Supreme Court has ruled it is legal. Ah, so the conscience. What do we as believers, are we truly free? And the Anabaptist said you cannot have lordship over our conscience. And get this, there is a Baptist pastor in Virginia in 200 years ago who was concerned that this kind of spiritual tyranny would come to America with the colonies. And it was coming. He met with James Madison in the House of Representatives in 1788. Madison would later become the fourth president of the United States. He met with him and told him that as they're making the Constitution's final draft, you need to put in the entire concept of religious liberty. This Baptist pastor, John Leland, Leland, saw that he was hesitant, and he said to him, Mr. Madison, if you do not do this, I will personally see to it that 
I run against you in the House of Representatives from this territory, and I will win. And Madison said, you know what? I believe you would. So he said, what do you want me to say? He wrote it down for him, gave it to Madison. Madison took it to Thomas Jefferson, and it became this amendment. Amendment number one to the U.S. Constitution. Congress will make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That came from the Baptists who threatened to run against a politician. The guy with Thomas Jefferson put that amendment into our Constitution today. We owe freedom of conscience to our Baptist forefathers. Leland said, Every man must give account of himself to God. So every man ought to be at liberty to serve God in a way he, his conscience requires. If government can answer for individuals on the day of judgment, then let men be controlled by that government in their religion. But if we stand before God without the government intercession, then we should stand free men. Now, it's a a wonderful thing here. And we're now 500 years from the Reformation. Give, Give me the picture of the tree. This is more like what you would see today the, the, uh, in the beginnings. I've put the roots down with Judaism. There's always the roots. We don't go back to the Reformation. We, go, we don't even go back to the first century. We go back to the Old Testament. We go back to Adam and Eve and Abel and Cain and their religions. Romans 11 says the roots, speaking of Judaism, bears you up. So there's their whole root system. But then as you move forward into history, it becomes one church rooted in in Rome because Rome became the primary birthplace of church planting in the first century. Catholic is Latin for universal. It just meant one great uh, universal church rooted in Rome. And so there was just this one church. But But just as when... In Old Covenant Judaism, Jesus came. Judaism veered off. And the twelve apostles kept the mainstream. Then, when in the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholic Church veered off, the reformers kept it in the mainstream. And today you have this flourishing kingdom of God with various denominations many of them doing wonderful things, and each one with a variety of ministries and emphasis. And I say, God bless them all. I praise God for them all. As long as they preach the gospel and keep the main thing the main thing. So you have this great tree. Only when a tree is mature do you have the fruit. You don't get fruit till it gets mature. And you don't have shade and blessing until it's in its maturity. There's many denominations, but one kingdom of God. Now, let me uh, just give you two or three things here uh, in this message today that I want to leave with you. One, 
Uh, this development of the church into various denominations did not take Jesus by surprise. He saw the tree. In fact, he predicted it. Give me Matthew 13, verse 31 and 32. Matthew 13. No, back up. There should be a verse. There you go. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. It starts out small. But when it grows up, it's larger than all and becomes a tree. So Jesus saw all these branches and variations. He said, it'll develop like this. Personalities are different. People's needs are different. Ministries are different. But it's still the one tree. And then notice what he says. You have all these birds that will come and nest. They'll find a place of home and safety within its branches. It will be so vast that it will take in so much. One of the things I uh, read in the Bible, and I think so beautiful, is we find out what kind of God has created the heavens and the earth. What kind of God that we have and we have as Father. And He's good. He's merciful. You know, um, they said, I was reading this a couple of weeks ago, 1 Kings 20, verse 31, when the, the defeated army was, or they were almost defeated, they said, well, let's go surrender to Israel. And the other guy said, why? 1 Kings 20, verse 31, he said, because I've heard the kings of Israel are merciful. Oh, man. See, that's the kind of God they worship, so they were merciful. Um, I told you I'd reading this book on the killing of the rising sun. One of the things that United States planes would do when they would bomb Tokyo. World War II was so brutal. It's unbelievably cruel. With tens of millions of people mercilessly slaughtered, raped, pillaged, robbed, tortured, experimented on. But when the United States went to bomb Tokyo, they didn't just go in with bombs. You know what they did? They went in first with planes that drop leaflets saying, get out of town, we're going to bomb you. (laughs) Who does that? What kind of nation does that? Ah, we have heard that the kings of Israel are merciful kings. Why? Because the God of the Bible is merciful and good and wherever the, whatever country is Christianized, it becomes like the God they worship. See, that, so all these people come to nest in its branches. Orphanages, Red Cross, hospitals, all of these things came out of the kingdom of God. And so when I, when I read this, Jesus predicted this tree and everybody wants in it. Everybody wants to get across the border. Go where the kingdom is permeated the society. Well, that's one thing. Another thing is there's a long struggle to establish the Christian faith. Uh, this, it did not come easy to have liberty today, folks. 
But here's the, here's the continuum. Acts 20, verse 29, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, or preached to the church at Ephesus. He said, after my departure, I know wolves will come in among you and don't spare the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking strange things and drawing away disciples after themselves. So be alert. And remember for three years, I didn't cease to admonish you day and night with tears. But now I'm leaving. So I'm commending you to, and here's the thing that keeps us on the straight and narrow. I'm commending you to God and the Word of His grace. God and His Word, and particularly the Word of His grace. Now that is the continuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the apostles to the reformers down to this day and the true definition of a church. God, His Word, His grace. One final thing I want to give to you this morning. Let's celebrate our freedom to worship. Let's not take it for granted. What a price it came at. Um, Let's remember, I started to say, uh, let's uh, follow the Baptist. (laughs) Uh, I'm from the South, so I'd say, hey, let's follow the Southern Baptist, but uh, that might be pressing it too much here. But remember the true children of the Reformation. The true children of the Reformation, the true standard bearers, are not those who persecute, but they are persecuted. And that is far better. But let's continue our, our celebration of worship. Make it a priority. It cost both Christ and His people over hundreds of years their blood. And David had this prayer. And I leave this prayer with you this morning. Psalm 27 and verse 4. This is what we can pray. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek after. Here's, what, here's the one thing that I will always dwell in the house of the Lord all my life. That the church will have a priority, I, that I'll be there all my life. Worshiping, seeing His beauty, hearing how wonderful God is. And inquiring. When I have questions, I'll ask. I'll ask him. See, there's David's heartbeat. That's one thing I want in life. That I, with my family, am in church all the days of my life. And when I have a question, I'll seek his truth and his word and his grace. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us, giving us your grace, giving us your goodness. Thank you for letting us be and participate in the kingdom of God. I thank you too today for the men who went before us. Many of them laid down their lives. I pray you will put a steel into our backbone, that we may stand for liberty of conscience as well. 
Grant us your Holy Spirit. Pour it out without measure that we may be true to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.